All right, tourism for Jesus. I, I think I can do that. I was pretty excited to see that opportunity. I walked in this morning to see the big map in our office that shows where our people are all around the world and tried to figure out how do I get to the stands from here? And uh, I'll be halfway there in November when we're in Europe with our, our team there. So I'm thinking maybe I could go the rest of the way and get all the way over there and uh, be with that. So maybe you want to pray about that. Maybe your family could take the trip of a lifetime and head over that way. Be, pr- be pretty cool. Well, if you're watching any series these days, uh, at our house, we're, we're watching the uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi series, right? Some of you are, are picking up on that. They always start with a recap of previous episodes, right? In case you missed an episode or it's been a while since you saw an episode or you're just forgetful. I always start with a recap. And so I want to I back up and do a recap of Ruth chapter 1 in case you weren't here last week or you're just forgetful. And uh, we'll, we'll do that by way of a video by a guy named Pastor Landon. I want you to watch him. This is a pretty fun little video to get, uh, get us started with our recap today. All right, we have arrived. After the dark and destructive judges, we get to Ruth, a short, beautiful, autumn love story. It takes place during the period of the judges, but it's a break from the killing and the eye gouging and the evil. It's like watching a Nicholas Sparks movie right after watching It. We start with Elimelech, but don't get too attached. He's out of the story super quick. He dies in chapter one, verse three. Sorry, man. But his wife, Naomi, is one of our main characters. They had two sons, Malon and Chilion. They're from Bethlehem, the future birthplace of Jesus, which is our next Jesus moment. No, just kidding, that happens later. They married two women from Moab, Orpah and Ruth, and they lived together in Moab for a decade. Then these two guys also passed away. That's like a ton of death, and we're only in chapter 1, verse 10. So all of a sudden, it's three ladies who are only related by people who are no longer living. Two girls and their mother-in-law. Now, there was a famine in the land, and they didn't have Amazon pantry or drones bringing in McDonald's. In those days, if there was a famine, your only option was to leave the country. So the three ladies went from Moab back to Judah in Israel. Funny fact, Oprah was actually named after Orpah, but her mom accidentally spelled it wrong. Kind of like how my name is actually London. (laughs) No? Okay. Naomi tried to break up their little trio and was like, just go back where you came from and find new husbands and start a new life. It was a terrible moment. All their husbands were dead and the possibility of them separating, they were just crying together. Naomi was bitter and she was like, it's the hand of God that's against me. Eventually, Orpah stood up and left. But Ruth just held on to Naomi. She wouldn't leave. Naomi kept trying to get Ruth to leave, but Ruth just busts out this amazing quote. She's like, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and be buried. And Naomi was like, same. So they stuck together and went back to Israel. Naomi though changed her name to Mara because of the bitterness she felt, blaming God for bringing trouble on her. It was the time of the harvest in Israel. That is uh, Ruth chapter one, a little little quick overview. He's super creative. He gets a little details wonky every once in a while. His famine travels a little backwards there, but it's a, it's a really good, a good overview. Key takeaways from chapter one. Uh, the incredible sorrows that Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, are carrying. After fleeing to a foreign land to evade a life-threatening famine, Naomi suffers the loss of her husband and both of her sons. One of those was Ruth's husband. So great are Naomi's sorrows. 
that some have dubbed her the female Job. Even in the darkest of times, though, we saw in chapter 1, God is providentially, quietly at work to bring good to this little family of his people. The famine is lifted. He lifts the famine. He provides Ruth for Naomi, a daughter of great faith and devotion. Uh, He arranges the time of their arrival back in the land just as the barley harvest was starting. We'll see the significance of that. Um, God is bringing about a greater good for all people through this little family. We took a sneak peek at the back end of the book last week and saw that what God is doing through the book of Ruth is he's preserving and protecting the line of King David, um, which leads to Jesus, right? The son of David in the New Testament. So today we'll be in Ruth chapter two. Find your way there if you haven't already on your phones or in your Bibles. And uh, let me pray for us as we open it up. Lord, again, be kind to us. Um, Give us ears to hear your word and the hope that it contains for us right where we are. The hope that our friends need so we can bear it to them well. Jesus, help us now. In your name we pray, amen. So uh, the last verse of chapter one. So Naomi returned to the land of promise and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, um, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem to the beginning, at the beginning of barley harvest. So everything in, in Ruth chapter two changes around that barley harvest. Ruth chapter two and actually chapter three as well. Um, this turns out to be the best most strategic time for these two suffering ladies to return to the land of God's people. Uh, One historian described it this way, Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, which is called the house, which is known as the house of bread, right? That's what Bethlehem means. Just when the grain for bread is ready to be cut, that is, they're getting there in late April or, or early March, somewhere in that time, Um, Since barley was the first crop to be harvested each year, the timing of their arrival meant that Naomi and Ruth could get settled at a time when food would be relatively plentiful. And they were around to lay up stores of each crop for the dry season. So pretty much everything that happens in chapter 2 happens in one single day in a barley field. Now, I'm not very creative in my sermon titles. Uh, This one is called Ruth Two. Um, (laughs) If Noah's preaching next week, I would title that one Ruth Three. But but if I were to give it an actual title, I would call this the Field of Dreams uh, because what happens in this barley field is almost too good to be true, almost. It starts with an introduction to another main key character in the story of Ruth. His name is Boaz. We meet him in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, her her deceased husband. His name was Boaz. Um, And we learn two critical pieces of information about this guy, Boaz, right out of the gate here. First, he is a relative of Naomi on her husband's side. That's the first piece. And the second piece we learn is he's evidently a man of some standing and noble character. Um, Now, just as an aside, 
even though the setting of our book of Ruth is pretty dark, right? Um, the characters are all awesome. Uh, Naomi, even though she struggles with her faith in her grief, she clings to God in really beautiful, commendable ways. Uh, Ruth, uh, obviously Boaz, we'll see, are all people of strong faith and character. It is perhaps the most positive of stories in the entire Old Testament, it feels like. Um, even though it's set in a context of tragedy and sorrow and famine. Now, both of those insights about Boaz, him being a relative and him being a man of standing and character, uh, are essential to our unfolding story. Look at verse 2. Ruth, the Moabite, that's kind of her moniker, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She said to her, go, my daughter. So Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, are back in Judah, but their hardships are far from over. They're two widows with no male provider uh, remaining. They are alone, and they are unprotected without any measurable income. And they are desperate for food. Remember, they're, they're coming off of a time of famine. Um, and so desperate are they that Ruth is willing to go and glean in the fields. Gleaning has been described this way. It's a way, it, it was described as Israel's welfare system. Okay? It was a, a way for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien to sustain themselves by scavenging leftover grain from community fields. Uh, the law of Moses had a gleaning law in Deuteronomy, and it required a landowner to leave the corners and edges of his field unharvested. And after clearing the field, harvesters were not allowed to go back for grain they missed, but were to leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, in, according to Deuteronomy 24. Hired male harvesters cut the grain, and female harvesters followed to gather the grain into bundles to be carted off to the threshing floor. Once both sets of harvesters were finished, gleaners could go gather up whatever, scrapped, whatever scraps remained. In an ancient Near Eastern shame-based culture, gleaning was a source of shame. It was a public display of poverty. Uh, one scholar compared gleaning to a mere subsistence living, much like trying to eke out survival today by recycling aluminum cans. Another likened it to running, rummaging through a garbage bin outside of McDonald's in search of someone's leftover Big Mac or a few discarded fries. The odds are slim that Ruth will return home with enough for Naomi and herself, especially with other gleaners competing for whatever grain remains. So it's also... Uh, it's also a dangerous thing to do as a young, unprotected, foreign woman. She's working a job at the level of cleaning up at a construction site, right? Surrounded by men who are day laborers who were at the bottom of the labor pool themselves. This is a situation Ruth is putting herself in. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And so Ruth humbly asked Naomi's permission to do this thing and Naomi's says yes. And then in verse 3, she set out and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Again, as we've seen, the clan of her deceased husband. And it's interesting there, it says she happened to come 
to the field of Boaz. He just happened to come there. Um, some of you are reading the old King James Version. This is awesome, the way it says it. Her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging to Boaz, right? That was her hap. It's just what happened to her. Uh, literally, it says, her chance chanced upon. So it's a really strange way for the Bible to say, um, to reflect Ruth, how Ruth found her way to Boaz's field. It's, it's like we would say, it's just pure dumb luck, right? That she found her way there. Um, and this is odd in light of what the Bible teaches about God's providence, right? His oversight of our lives. Proverbs 16, the dice are thrown into the lap, but their every decision is from the Lord. That's, that's kind of the way the Bible teaches about chance. Um, but Old Testament scholar Daniel Block puts the sense of it this way. He says, that statement about it being a chance, she happening to be there, is ironical. Its purpose is to undermine purely rational explanations for human experiences and to refine the reader's understanding of providence. In reality, he is screaming, see the hand of God at work here? The same hand that had sent the famine and later provided food is the hand that had brought Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem precisely at the beginning of the harvest and has now guided Ruth to that portion of the field that belongs specifically to Boaz. So... Naomi finds herself, by chance, put air quotes around it if you want to, gleaning in the field of this powerful man named Boaz. And as readers, we would be inclined to ask, so what's Boaz going to do with his power here? How is he going to treat this vulnerable woman? And verse 4, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And so here's another kind of providential coincidence. Just as Ruth begins to glean in his field, the very first morning she's there, Boaz shows up from Bethlehem to inspect the harvest. And here we see he's not just a man of stature in his community or a man of means, but he's also a man of faith. He greets his workers with the blessing of Yahweh, the one true God, and they return that blessing upon him. I like the way John Piper described him. He says, evidently Boaz was such a God-saturated man that his farming business and his relationships to his employees was shot through with God. He greeted them with God. That's, that's Boaz. And Boaz notices something, or at least someone, out of the ordinary in his fields of barley. Verses 5 through 7, Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Uh, evidently, Ruth stands out in that setting. Now, Boaz had not seen her there before, evidently. Um, she may still be wearing the garb of a widow, uh, and perhaps attire that even marked her out as a foreigner as well. And so he inquires about her. We learn um, that she's a woman of great humility. Not only did she graciously ask permission from Naomi to glean, she does it again with Boaz foreman here. He, she asks humbly for permission to glean in the field, even though, even though it was already permitted. Um, 
We see, too, that she's a hard worker, evidently. Uh, the foreman notes that she'd been working all morning, scarcely a break. Right? And Boaz responds in a really surprising way to this information that he gleans about Ruth. Gleans. Catch that. Thanks. Just checking to see if you're tracking with me out there. Um, verse 8. Boaz says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And Boaz offers two really unexpected things to Ruth as he discovers who she is and, and what she's like, right? He offers first protection. Um, stay in my field. You'll be safe here. I have charged my workers not to lay a hand on you. The young men are not to touch you. And Boaz, who is acting really as God's agent in this story, forbids sexual harassment of this young, vulnerable woman. And uh, dads on Father's Day, Boaz is our example in how we should train the young men in our house uh, by our example and by explicit instruction how to treat young women, right? The use and abuse of women is forbidden to a Christ follower. We are to esteem and value them. And Boaz, Boaz is schooling his young men here as, as we ought to. He offers protection. He off, also offers her provision. And in a pretty remarkable way, really unusual way, he offers her water, which seems like nothing on the face of it to, to us. But he adds this little detail. It's water that the men had drawn. And in their day, um, foreigners would commonly draw the water for the Israelites. And women would commonly draw the water for the men. And Boaz here flips those cultural expectations on their head. It's the first of several evidences of his care for Ruth that are really about to blow her mind. So what's going on here? This is like the boss asking the mid-level manager to give up their seat at a meeting to a custodian. Um, that's not the way things work around here, right? People would say. Um, except for here in, in what's going to be Ruth's field of dreams, right? Uh, verse 10, she fell on her face, Ruth did, bowing to the ground and said to Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth is totally blown away by Boaz's care for her, his favor on her, totally unexpected favor. Even though she, when she left Naomi back in verse 2, it's almost like she prayed this, it sounds like. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she found it. But what really shocks Ruth is he's treating her this way, and she's a foreigner. You know, we've already seen that kind of the label is this is Ruth the Moabite, <clears throat> Ruth the foreigner. It's her identity. Three times in this chapter alone, she's attached to Moab. Um, it's her identity in the eyes of people around her. She's a foreigner. She's not one of us. She's a non-Israelite. 
And Ruth is very aware of her race, her ethnicity, and its resultant kind of outcastness that it could that it could possess for her. And it floors her that Boaz would treat her better than his own people. And again, we see Boaz acting like God here, refusing to let culture barriers of race limit relationship or mercy. And it's, it's an example for us as God's agents today. Um, ethnicity, race, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, the love of Christ transcends all that for us. And so Ruth, Ruth asks, why, why are you treating me like this? And Boaz could have given a number of legit answers to that. Um, but the one he chooses to disclose at this point there in that field of barley is this one, verse 11. Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before? So what prompted Boaz to care for her in this way was her character, her reputation, right? She's a woman of kindness towards a widow in need when she was a widow in need herself. Word was out in Bethlehem that Naomi was back and that Ruth had left her family and her culture to come be in a people and a place that were foreign to her so that she could care for her mother-in-law. And Boaz was impressed by this. And as a man of faith, he, he kind of busts out a blessing for her in the next verse. Look at verse 12. He says to Ruth, um, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And he asked God to bless Ruth for her faithfulness to Naomi, for her choice to seek refuge in Yahweh, Israel's God, rather than what was familiar to her, her people, her land, her gods. And he asked God to protect her the way a mother bird protects her chicks. And I don't know about you, that doesn't always sound real awesome to me, like being protected by a bird. You know, it's just not, you know, tiger, lion, bird. Uh, but, you know, a while back, I was up in the mountains and I was hiking uh, by myself, had a walking stick, and I, I come upon uh, a wild turkey on the path, and she appears to be injured. She kind of has her wing out, and she's running, kind of scooting along in front of me, running away from me, and I, I know this trick. This is a mother bird trying to lure me away from her chicks, right? And so I stop, and I start looking around the grass, and sure enough, a handful of little chicks right there. And I look at the little chicks, they're peeping away. I look up, and this B-52 of a turkey is flying right <laughs> at me. Like, this is a bit... Turkeys are big, and this thing is coming right at me. I'm flailing my walking stick. I run down the path. I look back. She's coming at me again. She's not. It's a thing. Look at this. Look at this. Uh, that, it, turkeys. It's a, here's another one. Uh, I think we, we may have one more. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, they're, they're fierce. And don't even get me started about the Canada goose, right? Check this. Check this out. Here's another, and they've got one more. Look at that. So this is what God's like, right? He's, 
She's seeking refuge under his wings. Um, it's a thing. And so Ruth, in leaving the land of Moab, also left the god of Moab, Chemosh, and has sought shelter under the wings of Yahweh. Um, and Boaz blesses her and says, may God reward you for such faith that's evidenced in your presence in the field here, gleaning to provide for your widowed mother-in-law, Naomi. And Ruth responds and says in verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Naomi replies, she's, got, she's really, really grateful here for his action, his commitment to act on her behalf, his kind words towards her. Um, and again, her deep humility comes forward as she acknowledges that she's not even one of his servants. And again, Professor Daniel Block kind of explains the significance of what she's saying. He says that the language of servant here refers to a female servant of the lowest rank. Um, she could be given as a gift to accompany a bride. And if her mistress proved barren, she could bear a child on her behalf for the husband, although this would not change her status as a servant. By claiming the status of a servant such as this, Ruth views herself as occupying the lowest rung on the ladder. But by insisting that she will never be like Boaz's servant, she places herself even lower. Ruth is totally amazed that differences of race or class could not stifle Boaz's compassion towards her. And again, Ruth is, is so humble here, and Boaz so compassionate and generous, and he is about to ratchet that generosity up even more towards her. Um, verse 14, fast forward to lunchtime, right? At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine, so she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. So the scene is now lunch, that midday meal. Boaz is yet again providing protection and provision for Ruth. He invites her to eat with his workers, and he serves her himself. The scene reads like he's seated there with her, serving her, eating with her. Back in the day, to share a meal with someone was a sign of relationship, of fellowship, of friendship. It, it, meals have significance in our day too, right? You, you know this one? Here's one. He said, do you want to have food? And she said, you know, food? And he said, the code, you know? Anyway. He kind of lost it without having any audio with that. But if you're familiar with Elf, it's his way of indicating relationship with her. Now in Ruth, um, there could be some kind of Elf-like romance budding here, but there's no indication in the story at this point that there's anything like that going on. In fact, Boaz calls Ruth my daughter uh, back in verse 8. He treats her more like an older brother here you know, way he would care for her than a suitor. He is lavishing food on her such that she has leftovers, right? Um, from near starvation amidst a famine to leftovers. This really is kind of a field of dreams for Ruth. 
and it gets better and better and better for her. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So he literally has them pick the grain, leave it in piles for her to scoop up. Right? It's like, put a bow on it, guys. Put a name tag on it. This is for you. Really, it's what, almost what's going on here. And, and she has her hands full. Look at the next verse, 17. She gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an, an ephah of barley. And that amount, an ephah is hard to pin down. Guesstimates are that that amount of grain would have provided for these two women, Ruth and Naomi, food for a week. Right? Uh, some estimates say that was 30 to 50 pounds of grain. Um, this, is, this, is that, this is acted out that ancient Hebrew word that we mentioned last week, chesed. Right? It's on display here. And we cannot, we cannot capture the richness of this word in a single English word. So there's an army of words we've enlisted. And I've showed this to you before. Michael Card compiled them in his wonderful book about Hesed. And there are, if you just want to click through those seven pages of English words that people have used to try to capture the richness of chesed. Um, and that's what we're seeing here in, in Boaz. He's putting this riches of loves, this chesed, on display to Ruth, and Ruth, in turn, is lavishing that same love on Naomi as she drags a 50-pound bag of barley home to her mother-in-law. Verse 18, she took it up, went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left, after, left over after being satisfied. So it's not just 50-pound bag of barley, but the leftovers from lunch she also shares with Naomi. There's not an ounce of selfishness in this young widow Ruth or in Hesed, the kind of love she's displaying. And what happens next, one writer described as one of the great whiplash moments in Scripture. Uh, Ruth plunks down this unbelievable day's harvest down in front of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And this is what happens, verse 19. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Um, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And you can, you can imagine it. Naomi looks at the bag of grain. As if he had a 50-pound bag of grass seed. This is a big old bag of grain. She looks back at Naomi. She looks back at the bag. She looks, or she looks at Ruth. She looks back at the bag. She goes back and forth, back and forth. And she goes, where did you glean today? She knows this is not a normal day's work for a gleaner. This might not even be a month's worth of work for a gleaner. This is Hesed. She says, blessed is the man who took notice of you. And Ruth reveals his name to Naomi, Boaz. In verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, 
one of our redeemers. So Naomi now blesses Boaz, who has just blessed her through Ruth, and she acknowledges that all this is from Yahweh's hand. It is his kindness. It's that word again, kindness, hesed, right? The loving kindness of the Lord. And then Naomi reels a key piece of information that we, the readers, have been privy to from the very first verse, but Ruth had no idea about until this moment. Boaz is a relative, a close relative. He's what, what the Old Testament called a redeemer. Now, this redeemer idea is going to come to the forefront next week. Noah's going to teach for us next week, and he'll, he'll delve into that. But the gist of it is, is that redeemer is a kinship term that denotes the near relative who's responsible for the economic well-being of a relative. Um, and, and it comes into play, the, the redeemer comes into play, especially when the relative is in distress and cannot get himself or herself out of the crisis. So according to Old Testament law, the redeemer is one who can, buy, who can and really must protect family property from passing out of the family, um, buy you back out of slavery, uh, avenge your murderers, uh, ensure justice in a legal entanglement with another relative. So this man, Boaz, could make all the difference in the lives of these two destitute widows. And now we begin to see why the things we learned in the opening verse about Boaz are so critical to the storyline. We learned that he was a noble man, a good man, a man of means, and we learned that he was kin on the husband's, on her deceased husband's side. And Daniel Block explains the significance of this. He says, in long-range terms, the royal line of David would not be preserved if the man at whose field Ruth arrived was gracious, but from outside the clan. He could not have functioned as a kinsman redeemer, preserving the name and family of the deceased. Conversely, the line would not have been served if Ruth had indeed found the field of her deceased husband's and father-in-law's kinsmen, but he turned out to be a rogue, shooing off aliens, orphans, and widows. In the providence of God, the man she meets is indeed a gracious near kinsman. So in verse 21, Ruth the Moabite said, Besides... He said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So once again, we hear about Boaz protecting Ruth Naomi gets that. Gleaning can be dangerous work for a young foreign widow. Boaz will be her protector. Um, and oh, how he's going to provide. The closing verse tells us indirectly that Ruth continued to glean in Boaz's field, not just through the barley harvest, but through the next harvest season, the wheat harvest as well. Probably this means she was gleaning in his field for six to eight weeks. Estimates have been made as to what what kind of provision that might have been if she were to glean the same generous amount each day and ephah each day. Um, and if that were the case, she would have gleaned during that short time enough to feed herself and her mother-in-law for, for as much as a year. We have come a long way from famine. And there is more chesed to come in the chapters that remain much, much more. 
See, God is quietly at work for this suffering family. He did, they didn't even know. And he's arranging all these pieces to bring good to them and through them to bring the greatest of goods to the world. Here's a, here's a helpful summary of some insights from Ruth 2 about our God. It's from Pastor John Piper. It was the Lord who stopped the famine. It was the Lord who bound Ruth to Naomi in love. It was the Lord who preserved Boaz for Ruth. It was no coincidence that Ruth happened to come to Boaz's field. It was no coincidence that Boaz happened to show favor to this poor foreigner. The Lord directed her steps and his favor. The light of God's love is finally broken through bright enough for Naomi to see. The Lord is kind. He is good to all who take refuge under his wings. And so now, as God's people, as we have much need of God's undeserved loving kindness for each of us, his hesed, we gather around the Lord's table and we remember together the greatest display of the faithful love of God in the history of the world. The loving sacrifice of Jesus as he laid down his life for undeserving sinners on the hardwood of the cross. We remember his all-sufficient provision for our sin. It's a thing we could never glean on our own. Full forgiveness for all of our sins. Jesus himself would say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so as we partake of this table, we rejoice in Jesus and what he's done for us and his availability to us. And we look forward to the day when we'll sit down with Jesus and feast with him, enjoying the fullness of his company forever and ever. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, your mercies sometimes to our nearsighted eyes are hidden. But in the story we hear today, we, we are encouraged by faith to trust that they are there, that you are merciful all around us, that you are planning and scheming mercy that yet awaits us. And through us, to bring that mercy, that loving kindness of yours, that chesed of yours to the world. Um, so Lord, help us now as we come to this table to remember together um, how good you are, how loving you are, even, even when it seems hidden to us. The Lord's Table at North Wake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus and is currently walking in fellowship with him. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, um, this time serves as a simple, humble invitation to you to, to taste not of this bread that's a symbol, but of the very bread of life, who is Jesus himself, that, that you would cast your lot in with him, that you would trust him to bear your sins and you follow him. Um, that's, that's what this time is for you. Again, as, if you're a follower, this, this time is for you and I'd ask today we'll approach the table 
and take the elements and then return to your seat and hold them until we all partake together. We'll use the center aisle and the wall aisles to approach the tables and these two to return to our seats. So, so come, take of the body and the blood of our Lord.